I'm Justin, and welcome to The Quiet Reformation, where we talk about God, the church, and everything in between. Today, Tim and I are jumping back into the conversation with Dr. Nijay Gupta from Northern Seminary, getting his take on love, atonement, and the gospel within our guts. If you were to give maybe just a nugget about your increased understanding of how Paul uses love, what it is and what it isn't, because there does seem to be a lot of confusion in the world about, well, love is this or love is that. What are you learning about love? I grew up in a, in a, Christ, in a Christian environment where theology was something very serious, but also very sterile. You know, you know, you needed to know the right things. You needed to believe the right things. And over the past few years, a few things have really struck me, both in terms of my reading of scripture and in terms of my life experiences. A handful of years ago, I was having heart problems. And I, I actually thought I was, you know, experiencing a heart attack or something, you know, a heart, you know, heart murmur or something. And so I went to the ER and it was funny, the, you know, the nurse that saw me afterwards after some tests said, physically, you're fine, your heart's fine but I think you had an anxiety attack and I think you should meet with, you know, a counselor. So I met with, you know, a medical counselor and she, it was funny, this is a secular, you know, institution. She said, um, have you ever thought of meditation? I'm like, I'm a Christian. I should already know this, but it was funny. <laughs> I hadn't integrated my whole self to know how important it was to realize the gospel exists, not only in my brain, but also my body and my feelings. And that doesn't make it subjective in any sort of like anything goes sort of sense, but to pay more attention to the emotions and the heart in scripture and not just sort of making sure I can check the boxes right. that get me into heaven. Like, I, I don't think I really believed in that, but the way I'd been taught throughout time was take these tests, get an A on them, know who Jesus is, know the Bible, memorize the Kings, memorize the prophets, know know your biblical atlas and you know you're good and um combine that experience with reading in philippians uh chapter one where paul is in prison separated from his beloved philippians and um he says basically i miss you and he says i long for you with the affections of jesus christ and the word for affections there is one of my favorite greek words splachnan which is fun to say and it literally means bowels or guts. Wow. What's Paul doing theologizing our guts? Well, it's the same word that's used of Jesus experiencing compassion over the lost sheep, the lost and wandering sheep of Israel. Um, that's their way of expressing compassion, which is deep, visceral feeling for someone else. And that led me down a path of saying, does God have those kinds of feelings? for me? And should I have those kinds of feelings for God? And then it's like, oh my gosh, is the gospel also about feelings? Because I've been taught, you know, in my early life through a variety of different means, whether it's the education system or um, sports or whatever, that like, you know, feelings, feelings get in the way of sense. Right. That's kind of, maybe no one taught that to me directly, but I think I received that, that we squish down the feelings so that we can you know, do the right things. 
And here scripture's talking about how important Jesus and Paul's guts are for how, for how they engage one another. So you ask me what I'm learning. I, I, one thing in my, in my, you know, research journey on this is how much biblical writers talk about hate. And they do talk about hate, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. There's a whole bunch of texts that talk about hate. Um, now, that doesn't mean that God actually hates <laughs> Esau. Um, what I realized about love and hate is a comprehensive understanding about love is not just feeling involves feeling, not just thinking involves thinking, but really wrapping our, our whole self around someone or something, right? And then hate would be creating a distance or a, a wall or barrier between ourselves and someone or something. So, you know, you can love pizza and you can love your wife or husband and you can love your children and you can love sports. You know, there are different kinds of love, but love is actually one thing, which is wrapping ourselves, wrapping ourselves around someone, right? Our being around someone. And a lot of that means connecting them in a way that we care about them. Now, one of the hardest things I've had to do in this research is reckon with Jesus' teaching, love your enemies. They're enemies for a reason. <laughs> you know? Right. Jesus had enemies. It's hard for us to say, but he's implying that in saying it. Right? Jesus had enemies. And we don't love our enemies by patting them on the back and saying nothing's wrong. But the challenge there is to care about our enemies. Right? Bless those that curse you. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. And it doesn't mean pray that they go to hell. Pray <laughs> that they are rejected by God. It means doing the hard work of praying that God would bless them and their family and their community and the people they work with. How hard is that? But to me, that is gospel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we have to leave to God how he's going to awaken them to the truth. Right? That's God's business. But yeah. but the rationale that Jesus gives is God gives his blessed sunshine and his rain on righteous and unrighteous alike. And the implication is, so should we. If God calls you to hand out, you know, $100, $1 bills on the street, what he's saying in Matthew 5 is give the same dollar to your enemy as you would your friend. That's the implication of the sun and, and the rain. And I got to tell you, that's, yeah. I mean, I've spent my quiet nights cursing my enemies <laughs> and I'm, I'm not taking seriously the gospel in Romans five that says, while you were still sinners, while you're enemies with God, Christ died for you. So what I'm learning in my journey is yes, actions matter. Yes. Thinking matters. Yes. Orthodoxy matters. Yes. Seminary matters, but our guts matter too. And our guts are a really important part of how we interact with the world and, and, what, and, and who and what we choose to love and hate. And one thing I learned about hate is you're never supposed to hate people. There, there are lots of things you're supposed to hate. Sin, unrighteousness, injustice, wickedness, you know, the flesh, you know, and the bad parts of the flesh, but you're never supposed to hate people. And that's, that's that's something God showed us. Um, so that's really that's what's challenged me and, and kind of inspired me to write this book. 
Nijay, this sounds like John 6 kind of gospel. This teaching is too hard for us. You know, Jesus loses all his followers. You know, I don't know if we have any listeners left after that. But Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's tough. But, this is real. but then the disciples say, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. Amen. And uh, we have a refrigerator magnet um, that I got at a, at a bookstore. And it said, it's, it's Martin Luther King Jr. It's, it's my favorite, uh, currently my favorite quote of his. And he says, um, hate, hate is too great a burden to carry, so I choose love. I think about all the time, because I see so much hate. When I go on Twitter, and sometimes I have to for work reasons and this and that, I see so much hate. And I don't know if I've ever written this on Twitter, but I've thought about you know doing this. Hate is powerful. It's the second most powerful force in the world. Guess what the first is? It's love. But we see a lot of number two. We don't see a lot of number one. And it takes grace, and that grace comes from somewhere. There's a story I want to tell you about Miroslav Volf, who's a very famous theologian. And he's from Eastern Europe, I think Croatia. And uh, growing up, his younger or older brother, his brother died in an accident involving some uh, soldiers. I don't know. I don't know if I know exactly what happened, but his parents um obviously heartbroken but they engaged in communicating forgiveness to those soldiers and miroslav was as a young person was so angry and he confronted them his parents were pastors he confronted them and he said you know how could you do this and you know obviously with sobriety and and still mourning they said we had to make a decision if god didn't withhold forgiveness from us who are we to withhold forgiveness from others? That's I learned that story about 10 years ago. That's really st stuck with me as I experienced resentment to say part of the gospel is when you accept the gospel, you accept the way of the gospel as well. And the way of the gospel calls us to, to love our enemies. It's, hard, it's a hard lesson. And so to keep it guttural right now, as you said earlier, could I then ask, especially thinking about your book, Sin and Its Remedy, is, is there any model theory aspect of the atonement that you feel like in your life you're really gutturally responding to because of the, the grace of God, because of the love of God towards you, Nijay? There's a, there's a New Testament scholar named Joel Green. He talks about the kaleidoscopic approach, which means you kind of throw them all together into one, you know, the, you know, Christus Victor, you know, Christ the conqueror over sin and death. You have substitution. You have one of my favorites, which is participation in Christ. Salvation is being unified with Christ himself. Um, I think to me, that's, that's really the heart of them all, although other uh, approaches of atonement are expressed throughout the Bible, but um, you know what I've what I've learned in terms of atonement, just in the process of writing this book, is we talk a lot about the mechanisms of salvation. You know how does it how does it work? You know, like a toaster. How do I get inside and figure out all the mechanisms? The mechanisms are interesting, but to me, more important is the motivation. Did God save us because He had to? because he's God and he had to. The Bible actually doesn't say that. 
it says he saved us because of his concern and care for us. He loved, you know, he loved us. And so in terms of atonement theories, I think it lends itself to union with Christ, participation in Christ. But, you know, I, I, I can go along with, you know, the expression of a variety of other ones. I think what's most important is I love listening to worship music in the car. And one of my favorite songs, um, I think it's it's a Chris Tomlin song, but it, it it repeats the line, he loves us, he is for us. Right. And this actually comes from Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? And there's a, 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 a you know, 19th, uh, sorry, 20th century Christian scholar named Charles Cranfield. And he refers to that, that line as the gospel in short form. God is for us. That is the gospel. If you, God is for, if you had to have four words, if you asked me to define the gospel in four words, I had to count them just now in four words, God is for us. And I might add two more in Christ. That, that would be it. Like that's to me, like if I have, so if Tim said, Hey, come preach at my church on the gospel, he wouldn't even need to ask me what the sermon title would be. I would tell, I, you could just guess that that's what it would be. Cause that's now what I would want to preach on. That's reminiscent of C.S. Lewis and those last words. What's the most profound thought that you've ever had? He says, Jesus loves me. Yes, uh, that, yeah, that's it. Most profound thought I've ever had. Smart yeah. guy. I just want to hit you with a couple quick, a couple quick responses to uh, for our listeners. One, pastors who are listening to this right now, they're handling the New Testament all the time. You know, well, they're handling the they're handling the scriptures all the time as a New Testament prof, as a New Testament theologian. What's one thing you might say to pastors as they handle the scriptures? All right, I'm going to give you a hard teaching and then an easy teaching. Okay, hard teaching. I'm going to challenge you to learn the biblical languages. It was the most important thing I did in seminary. I use them every day. I use them when I preach. I use them when I teach. It's just a gold mine. It's the difference between, you know, watching a Lord of the Rings movie and reading the books, right? Watching the movies is an invitation to read the book. Reading, you know, I'm saying this to pastors, everyday Christians, your English Bibles are great. Pastors, it's really important that you learn Greek to dig into the details. You can do these word studies. You can see the richness. Okay, easy teaching. I'm going to say go back to the basics and relearn inductive Bible study. I learned this through the navigators in college, and it's really just about observation. The problem with pastors today is their overfamiliarity with the Bible. We study it so much. I had a professor who once said, Read the Bible in such a way that it will surprise you. Oh, that's good. How can pastors and Christian leaders turn on some curiosity component of their brain so that they observe the things that they normally would just skim over because, ah, oh, I preached a series on this a few years ago, or I studied this book in seminary. Um, be curious. Write lots of questions. The more curious you are, the better. So that, that's the easy teaching. So next one, for the average believer who, um, you know, is studying the word in the morning with the time that they have reading the scriptures, but, but they don't have the time set aside for sermon prep and all that that a pastor does, what would you say to them in their reading of the scriptures? You know, I, I'll talk about disposition and then I'll talk about tools. So let's start with disposition. When I was, you know, a young person, I read the Bible for information. Eugene Peterson talks about this in his wonderful book, Eat This Book. 
he says, you know, many people just read the Bible for information, to learn your little lesson for the day. And he, Peterson really challenged me. Information is good, but the Bible is written for formation. And that requires reading with a disposition or mindset or heart set of listening to God. Some people are really good at that. I'm really bad at that. And so I have to be really careful about just making my quiet time a checklist of motto for the day, you know, snack for the day. It's really about engaging God. So I tell my kids and, you know, I try to tell people, slow down. It's not, it's not a marathon. Slow down. If you just need to spend time in a, in a psalm or a little section, it's about, it's about listening to and talking to God and being shaped by scripture, by God's word. Practical tool, I'd say get help, meaning, you know, you can learn a lot from just sitting with the Bible and reading, but you can learn even more by having a good resource like, like a devotional commentary, like one of the Story of God Bible commentaries. So I'd say just pick one. You could pick Lynn Kohick's Philippians volume, or you could pick uh, Mike Bird's Romans. That's a long one. Or you could pick Scott McKnight's uh, Surround the, the Mount and just read through it devotionally, praying. It's got scripture in it and, and just be open to learning. It's really helpful. I'm remembering right now as you're talking about kind of the devotional aspect of how people read the scriptures that Christian Smith did a, a study at one point about, um, you know, adult believers and what those who uh, remained in the faith who were raised in the faith, but were still in the faith as adults, and what were the common denominators. And there was all sorts of things they suspected to find, but they actually only found two factors that they said were consistent factors, that if there was a high school student who had been having solid devotional time while they were in high school, that there was a really good chance that they were going to, by their adult life, still remain in the faith. And secondly, is if they had seen their parents take a major risk of faith and step out in response to what they were reading in the scriptures, then that had, and, and they would be able to recall that, that in their early years, they saw those who they looked to respond from what they were, what they were reading and step out in obedience. It's a pretty cool thought. The last thing we ask of you is um, when you are thinking about our, our listeners right now, we're just asking if you could close with a blessing over our listeners, uh, that could be words you want to speak or a prayer you want to pray, something from your heart to them. Absolutely. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, I pray a blessing on the leaders, listeners um, involved in this network. I pray that they would be turned towards faith, hope, and love. People need faith and commitment. People need hope in their lives and the need to know the love of God. I pray that those things would be guiding lights in the minutia and in the great things we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Reminders of birth of your eyes first open, the lights first intrusion, the beginning of desire. He sees hope in the misery, the joy in the pain with words of healing, song like rain. Sings light in the